From somewhere in Northeast Indiana, Mike Davidson lives. And now your host of the podcast, Mike Davidson. Oh yes, Mr. Robert, thank you very much. It's me, it's Mike, it is Mike Davidson lives. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Happy 2023, bye and bye. Hope you're doing very well. Uh, apologies for this past week. Uh, the original original plan was for me to you know drop your rock part one Christmas weekend do a regular podcast midweek this past week and then drop part two uh, for the weekend but uh, what ended up happening was I was just damn sick and thankfully I had that um, in the can so I was able to uh, put that in place and that's why I'm cutting a new episode tonight on uh, what is now the second day of 2023 but yeah it was just uh, a Wednesday night sore throat headache all that fun stuff uh, carried over into Thursday met it up so bad like I was tired I was exhausted I couldn't do anything um, could barely talk but uh, feeling a lot better now even though I don't sound like it uh, my nose has not stopped running and anytime I have a blanket on me I start to sweat profusely uh, not fevered or anything like that. It's just kind of, uh, you know, you get one symptom one day, another symptom the other day. It could be uh, a whole host of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, doing a lot better, and I do have the day off tomorrow from work, which is now today. So Monday, I have no uh, no obligations to worry about. I can sleep in a little bit, knock on wood, with the kids. Uh, aside from uh, being struck sick recently, uh, not not too bad in my corner of the world. Uh, did have a pretty decent Christmas. Kids loved it. Uh, they got some pretty cool toys. Uh, we stayed in because it was pretty damn cold. New Year's Eve was pretty decent because I uh, didn't go out drinking. Uh, <laughs> had a couple of beers at home, uh, and uh, you know I watched the offer uh, from Paramount Plus, which I'll talk more about here in a bit. And I watched some great college football, which I'll also get to here in quite a bit. Um, here's my thing about the New York City ball drop. Uh, it used to be a thing. Now it's not because every everybody's got a thing now. Whereas, you know, you count down to uh, the next year and it's a big to-do. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, New Year's Day does not really seem like a holiday. And don't get me wrong, I appreciate the fact my workplace is observing it and Monday I get it off. No problem there. Just doesn't really feel as special as say like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving or even a Halloween. It's just uh, the last few hours of the old year. That's when the party starts. Goes well into the early part of the new year, and then the rest of New Year's Day is basically just a day of recovery, a day of regret. Maybe you shouldn't have drank so much. It's uh, yeah. It's. It shouldn't be called a, a, a holiday. New Year's Day should just be called a day of recovery. Separate class. All right. Uh, I did get into a little bit of hot water here at, on the home front because um, uh, I like to swear. And apparently my oldest daughter, Lana, said for her mom a couple days ago, what the hell? And my, my wife texted me and I was like, oh, God. And I knew, I knew it was probably from me. But, you know, talking with my wife, she goes, you know, there's also that stuff on television. It's kind of hard to avoid that stuff nowadays. Um, and you don't want your kids to start talking quite like a sailor just yet. That that comes from the joy of being a taxpayer. But, uh, you know, I came home Friday night and I 
trying to talk to my daughter about it, said, hey, I would do better. You know, I, I might swear like a sailor where I work now and maybe a little bit with the podcast, but I will my my <laughs> language, sorry, a little bit around her. But she, the thing was, is um, she was pretty embarrassed by it. She was, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Like she felt really like she let down everybody. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like you don't want you don't want your kids to start swearing like that. But at the same time, I mean, she she got to recognize what she did was wrong and was embarrassed by it. She was just you know emulating what adults do. Unfortunately, be being an adult, I can assure you that uh, we don't know what the hell we're doing. And yes, I I purposely said hell there because you should not be letting your kids listen to this podcast. So. A little bit of regret there, but uh, she's okay, and, ho- and thankfully, uh, everybody was okay around uh, Coliseum up here in Fort Wayne. Um, kind of a big story before Christmas, uh, about a week and a half back, was uh, was it Glenbrook Dodge? That uh, they have the giant American flag on Coliseum, and uh, for those outside of Northeast Indiana, it's like this big honking flagpole uh, with you know, the American flag. And it's it's uh, pretty iconic. Like it stands out. You know where the car dealership is. And uh, the winds were pretty bad last couple of days um, around just before Christmas. And temperatures were cold. And that thing snapped, and parts of it fell. Uh, I do have that linked up uh, a little bit on the Mike Davidson Facebook page. But man, that was just crazy. Like some cars got damaged, but nobody was hurt. Thank God. Uh, I could only imagine what would have happened if. Uh, if somebody did get caught under there, it just been, it would have been terrible, terrible. Uh, but uh, yeah, Christmas is done. Uh, now we got the the college national championship going up a week from Monday, I believe, and it's going to be uh, the Horned Frogs of TCU surprising Michigan, taking on Georgia, uh, which survived Ohio State. And uh, again, being in Northeast Indiana, you know you're about. Um, where I'm at about an hour south of Michigan and now a half an hour west of Ohio. And so, you know, you do have your Michigan fans, you do have your Ohio State fans, and it's probably going to be an argument in the next couple of days among themselves as to who crapped the bed worse. Um, it's it's not a good showing for the Big Ten at all. Um, uh, because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the pundits were saying that uh, TCU had no business being in there. So, some of these guys, because, oh, you know, it's the Big 12, it's not a conference, and, you know, they didn't really play anybody. They lost a conference championship and all that stuff. But uh, they showed up in their game against Michigan. When I was, if, I, if I was to tell you who I thought performed worse, Ohio State or Michigan, I would have to go with Michigan on this. And keep in mind, I'm not a big, uh, big fan of either school. Uh, Ohio State, I mean, uh, Stroud, the quarterback, like, he was running off targets. They had so many injuries. Like, this guy uh, went out on his shield with the Buckeyes. I mean, he was doing everything he could to win the game, uh, even when things were going wrong. So I can't fault this dude. But Michigan, man, like, they had, like, a collective brain fart going into this game. Like, they were not prepared at all to take on TCU. Uh, Dumb trick plays, uh fumbles, pick sixes. I mean, I know there's that controversial call uh, where the dude landed on his butt just outside the end zone, but, uh, you know, something like that, uh, that that being reversed, you could survive that if you play hard and play smart. You can't control what referees do, uh, as frustrating as that sounds. 
you can only control what you can do. You know, good coaching, good playing, uh, you know, just playing hard. And uh, you, you have a better chance of winning. And Michigan just, I, I don't even know, know where to begin with that team. They just, the thing was, too, is like they were still within a score of winning that game late in the, game, uh, late in the fourth quarter. But again, a lot of miscues. It was just like they had a collective lobotomy. Uh, it was almost like Jeff Saturday was coaching the team and not Jim Harbaugh. Uh, and uh, Jeff Saturday, I'm sorry. Like, I just I saw the Colts lose uh, earlier in the day, 38-10 to the New York Giants. Uh, two straight weeks where uh, uh, the opponent that has beaten the Colts has now clinched a playoff berth, the L.A. Chargers being uh, uh, the other team for the Monday night contest. But uh, I, I, I did a little math uh, just before the end of the game. And, um, you know, everybody's talking about how Frank Reich was ruining the team this year and fire Frank, fire Frank, and after nine games they fired him. And then they did the stupid thing and they hired a temp employee and Jeff Saturday being that temp employee but the, the the mindset was to inspire and to uh, motivate these guys, and you know who better than somebody who was a part of a, a legendary team? And you know he, Jeff Saturday was an important cog in that team, but he is a, a shit coach, and far worse than Frank Reich. If you don't believe me, I, I did a little math toward the end of this game. Like I said, I had my calculator, my phone. Uh, you know uh, when Frank Reich got fired, it was after that uh, that blowout in New England. At the time, they were three and six. They were three and six, and uh, the average margin—you combine uh, how much they win, how much they lose, divided by nine, nine games—the uh, average was minus five point six seven points per game. Yeah, uh, less than a touchdown. Not good. Not great. Um, you you want to score more points? Um, you want to score more points than your opponent? That's just basic Madden math right there. Uh, but under the last seven games with Jeff Saturday, the average margin has been minus 12.29, so it's doubled. Colts, on average, are getting beat by, like, at least two possessions a game. Uh, you know, they're, they're not looking all that sharp. They, do, they, they look like a defeated team. Jim Irsay's basically set that team on fire. That's not Frank Reich's fault. You know, the thing is, too, is like Frank Reich would pro probably lost his uh, job at the end of the season, and I get that. Things weren't working out, but I don't think that's all on him. Uh, but uh, this is a team that definitely has no direction, no playmakers, and watching them flounder 38-10 today out in uh, New York, just if, just... I, I cannot wait for the season to be over. And that's the other thing, too. I'm not a big fan of the 17 games uh, in 18 weeks thing. Go back to 16, because that's the way I like it, damn it. All right, so uh, I am almost, almost done watching the offer on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, nine episodes out of ten. Um, I'll probably watch the last one tomorrow. Uh, it's, it's pretty solid. Um, and it's um, Michael Tolkien is the showrunner for this thing. Um, uh, he And Miles Teller, who's the star, he plays uh, Al Ruddy, uh, the producer behind The Godfather. Uh, you know, they, they put this show together, and uh, uh, Michael uh, Tolkien has been a, a novelist, a screenwriter in Hollywood for so long, so he's got some knowledge about some stuff. Uh, he, I guess his big thing was The Player, which isn't bad, by the way. Uh, but it's a, it's a very interesting look at what Hollywood used to be like. 
uh, and like when creators and execs gave a damn about the products they were putting out. Um, and uh, I, you know, I gotta say, uh, first of all, like not everything in this show is factual. A lot of it's uh, kind of a take it with a grain of salt type of thing. It's from one perspective. Uh, they do take some. Uh, uh, what's what's the they take some liberty, some creative liberty. With the story, uh, the uh, the character that uh, Colin Hanks plays, uh, Lapidus, he's a bean counter. Uh, that character is a fictitious character; didn't exist at all. He's more of an uh, an amalgamation of uh, of uh, all the bean counters at Paramount or at Gulf Western that were against uh, the Godfather wanting to be made, and you know, movies had to follow a certain formula and all that that stuff. But it's it's an interesting story, um, and and t Miles Teller does pretty well. You also have uh, you also have uh, great performances uh, from the guy that's doing uh, playing Francis Ford Coppola. His name is escaping me, and I had it written down. It's downstairs, though. Damn it! Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think the one that stands out to me the most is Matthew Good as uh, as uh, as uh, Robert Evans, the legendary studio exec behind Paramount. You know, womanizer, hard drinker, cocaine, snorting. Cigarette smoking, uh, just foul mouth, shoot from the hip type of guy who knew what it take, uh, took to make movies and uh, would take risks on movies and uh, take risks with storytelling. So, um, the whole thing with Francis Ford Coppola is like he's an artist and they, they, uh, they, they portray this so well. I mean, he's neurotic as hell, and, uh, but he has a great feel of what the novel should be, the, good, the, the Godfather should be how the story should be told, and he didn't want to take any shortcuts if he could avoid it. He wanted Al Pacino when the studio was against Al Pacino. He wanted Marlon Brando when Marlon Brando was being Marlon Brando. Uh, Marlon Brando has a habit of being Marlon Brando, by the way. Um, he wanted to shoot in Sicily. They wanted to shoot in other places to save money, but he it was very important for him to shoot uh, Michael on the Lamb in Sicily, Michael Corleone, because he says this is the tipping point, uh, this is the hardening of his heart, uh, you know, showing how he could never be free of his family's legacy and the violence around it. And he's absolutely right. I mean, if you tried doing this today, it would be CGI'd out the ass. If you tried making The Godfather today, you would have a hard time doing it because there would be, you know, corners cut and all that fun stuff. Uh, with with the CGI and of course uh, you you would cave on every demand of anybody that's offended because at the time there were Italian Americans offended by Mario Puzo's book they thought that he was a traitor to their race their eth uh, ethnicity their heritage when he wrote that book he was just write, writing what he knew growing up and there's a lot of heat behind it and uh, Francis Ford Coppola being Italian uh, you know, you got a little heat for this, but they're trying to tell a personal story. They weren't telling, uh, you know, the stereotypical mob, uh, mama mia type of mobster. They were telling a story about family. This is a, a tragedy on Shakespearean level, and uh, they do a very good job. They fight to get this story made. I mean, it's they, they fought for a product they believed in. And if you were to, and of course, there's some concessions that were made along the way, but I don't see that happening with studio execs now. They would roll over any chance they get. 
what was it um the snow white thing uh was it from last year uh where you know peter dinklage wrote rose uh he raised some hell because uh, they were going to have seven dwarfs, and he found that very stereotypical demeaning. And of course, uh, we have to consult to make sure that uh, this doesn't uh, offend this, 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 this. Um, and there were some uh, actors uh, who were dwarfs, midgets, you know, small people. Uh, I forget the name of one person in particular, but he's like, thanks a lot, Peter, for making my life hell. You know, we can't all be big shots like you. And he, he was pretty much alluding to the fact that Hey, this is a role. This is make believe. Um, I'm just trying to earn a paycheck here, man. Um, but that's kind of what the Godfather would run into with the mobsters and Italian Americans. And when when people started seeing that what this project was all about, they changed their tune. You know, and, and that's again fighting to get people to see your way. And it it would do Hollywood wonders if they were more like that today. Instead of making PC crap. Godfather's not PC. It is very un-PC. It's, um, it's not a stereotypical movie. It's not a caricature by any stretch of the imagination. It's just raw. It's people as they are. And again, it's about family. And it's just it's it's kind of breath, breathtaking to watch this show... And uh, seeing this legendary story come to life. And by the way, the side note, you know, Francis Ford Coppola is freaking out the entire time making this movie. And I'm thinking, well, just wait until you make Apocalypse Now, buddy. Because that movie's going to be living hell on your nervous system. Um, James Cameron, by the way. Um, you know, I'm sure he doesn't have to put up too much of a fight to get stuff done. But I've got a little scratch in my head about this one. Uh, Avatar 2. Uh, never saw the first Avatar. Really, not really interested in seeing that. Probably not going to see Avatar 2 either. Um, but he said it would cost $2 billion with the B damn dollars to break even with Avatar 2. And I think it's won its third straight week at the box office, so it's doing okay. It's already surpassed $1 billion. And I'm just thinking, well, how much did it cost to make this movie? I mean, because there's other things that go into it besides budget just to break even. And so, you know, I was doing some research, and, you know, I've got numbers anywhere from, like, uh, uh, $250 million. I think Variety had it marked, uh, marked at, like, $350 million. And I saw one source saying that it cost $460 million to make. Okay, that's the actual making of the movie budget. Uh, and then they estimate it's probably another 100 to 150 million to uh, market this thing. And I, so maybe, so if I'm doing the math right, you would have to make over 600 million dollars to break even. So what, what the hell is he talking about with 2 billion dollars to break even? If anything, he's probably going to make three and four. I don't know if this has anything to do with the fact that he's already shot some scenes for uh, the next couple of movies, but I can't imagine him it costing that much more, right? Is this one of those things where, like, you know, Hollywood media just kind of runs with the story? Oh yeah, the director said it. This this is true because I'm not seeing it, and, and I'm not just talking about not seeing the movie, but I also acknowledge that this movie's doing pretty well and it's got its fan base, and it's not looking quite to be the bomb. Uh, that uh, some some people in the industry were thinking it was going to be. Uh, 
but two yeah it just it doesn't make any sense if it costs you know 460 million dollars at most and that's still a lot of money to make it 150 million to market it where's this two billion number coming from interesting all right uh, a couple stories um that were um in between here and there uh between the christmas holiday and now uh twitter files and this is something that's been ongoing with uh, elon musk and some journalists he's uh, let them see some inside emails and uh you know some of the stuff looks pretty bad and um one of the, they alluded to one COVID story, I think. Uh, I think on the first strand that uh, Taby, uh, Matt Taby did, and I was wondering, well, how how involved was this process to filter out a lot of the dissent when it came to the COVID stories? And uh, another story dropped uh, just a few days back, and apparently quite a bit. Um, they were using uh, Twitter bots, uh, spam bots, uh, not spam bots, but like bots, to filter out information that they did not want. Uh, and these were programmed algorithms. And so anything that went against with what the CDC was saying, what Dr. Fauci was saying, uh, was misinformation, even if you were just raising questions. I mean, not necessarily going out to lie about something, but you were raising questions about, well, how true is this? And uh, one person in particular, she got flagged by one of these Twitter bots and some of the Fauci uh, uh, fans out there. And it, you know, for, for people that uh, bitch about Elon Musk fanboys, uh, Fauci fanatics are kind of uh, dipshits in their own way. Um, but this woman was talking about uh, a stat that uh, COVID was the number one killer among children. I think in the summer of 2021 here, and she pointed out um, a bunch of statistics in that time frame that, that puts COVID down the list, and she was using CDC information, like the Centers of Disease Control. She was using the CDC's very own information to prove this this alleged fact wrong. She, she gets... Uh, checked down by uh, the censors and called uh, you know somebody uh, somebody who's misinformed uh, and all this fun stuff and there was a heavy bias toward uh, Dr. Fauci I guess among the staff at Twitter in fact I think I was reading one source that said uh, there was a Dr. Fauci fan club at Twitter wow uh, you, to, to be to be that cool uh, and uh, worship a bureaucrat bravo guys so that, that was the story that's been breaking. And I said this, I mean, like, not necessarily the, the pandemic type of mentality, but just, by and large, not questioning half the stuff that was coming out of these people's mouths because we now know that staying six feet away from somebody nece doesn't necessarily mean, hey, yeah, you're going to be healthy. Uh, the masks weren't necessarily a big uh, thing that worked all that well. And uh, the, the uh, vaccine itself did very little to spread, stop the spread of the disease, as now we have several variants of that. So, uh, good job, Twitter. Um, and again, this is why I have no problem with uh, Elon Musk running Twitter. Not necessarily because I think he's doing, you know, bang-up job, but uh, the, the people behind Twitter were just as corrupt, if not more so, than Elon could ever possibly hope to be. All right, uh, say... Uh, Sam Bakeman freed. Remember this douchebag? Uh, he got arrested in the Bahamas. He's out on bail now. 
Oh, isn't that great? Uh, his parents put up $250 million bail money so he could be on home detention in their house, in their mansion, until he goes to trial. I mean, there's a part of me that's rolling my eyes about this because there's such kid gloves going on behind the scenes when it comes to this guy. And I know that the New York Times has uh, recently written a story where they went down to the Bahamas and uh, locals were uh, saying, well, he always tipped well. It's a shame that he went to jail. And it's like, well, yeah, but uh, FTX basically cratered anything that uh, cryptocurrency was ever going to be. And he wasn't really tipping with his money. If uh, if the story's about him using money to buy up his parents' houses, it's true. But on the other hand, uh, him being at home in his parents' house, probably less likely uh, an issue where uh, he'll uh, get suicided. You know, you know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, the uh, the prison guards are going to go take a nap. So as long as he doesn't run, uh, I guess no problem. But it does look bad. I don't know. It just there's there's just a very weird thing about this story. The fact that people want to cover this guy's ass and uh, the fact that he's allowed to make bail. Wonder what he's got on some people. All right, couple quick stories before I wrap it up for the evening. Um, I saw earlier this week, Bill Cosby is going to go on tour in 2023, and I don't think there's any way in hell this 85-year-old comedian who just recently released from jail is going to have a Taylor Swift uh, Ticketmaster issue. I'm just not seeing it. This is kind of sad, man. I mean, this this was a very, once very iconic comedian, television star, and just recent events. And, you know, it's a lot of hearsay, and he said, she said, she said, she said. I get that. But I just, I don't think there's any, rede any redemption in the public persona of Bill Cosby. Unless he's that hard up for cash. I just, I, even if he didn't have all this crap, let's just say uh, in another alternate timeline, Bill Cosby was as pure as driven snow and never had any of this crap brought up against him. Uh, at 85, it's really kind of hard to be on top of your game. So this, this seems kind of like desperation right here with Bill Cosby. I don't know. Um, also... Steven Tyler of Aerosmith might be in hot water. He might be in a Bill Cosby-esque type of situation because there's a lawsuit from a woman uh, who said that uh, he is, he assaulted her sexually when she was a minor back in the 70s. You know, about 45, 50 years ago. You would think the action would be... To, do it right there and then, you know, bring up charges, but that never happened. But here's the thing, is I think she was uh, uh, signed over to Steven Tyler by her parents because they're going to get married and he was going to take care of her and all this stuff. Um, I am never going to understand how any parent can look at their teenage daughter and then look at, you know, a rough and tumble, drug-addicted, alcoholic rock singer and go, yeah, we want you to run off with him. I mean... Not to be all like, what were the parents thinking, or where were the parents, but where were the parents, and what the hell were they thinking? 
I'm more I'm more pissed off about the parents letting this go uh, potentially happen, even if something didn't happen, just because of the general principle of it all. Um, but Steven Tyler now uh, he's got his own little thing going. I, I don't know if there's going to be more women that come out of the woodwork, a la Bill Cosby, but he's that he's got that going on. All right, so uh, before I go to bed and leave you. Uh, there's a story out of San Francisco that's very San Francisco, and uh, it's it, it kind of proves a point of my uh, my my theory on San Francisco, and I've been thinking about this for a while now. Um, the, this is linked up on the Mike Davidson Facebook page, but this woman who's using one of the bike paths out there in the city uh, gets off her bike and goes on TikTok or whatever those things are, and uh, she shoots a video about her swearing and ranting about this garbage truck parked on the side of the road on the bike ramp and she's bitching about how oh you should have pulled under the parking lot and going on and on and on about how you know inconsiderate this guy is she's videotaping this banging on his truck door and not going around him not going around him in the, on the street there's no traffic by the way not going around on him uh, on the sidewalk. By the way, nobody uses sidewalks unless, uh, you know, in San Francisco, unless you're going from the parking garage to your car or, you know, you just want to poop on the sidewalk because that's what they do out there. But she's she's making this viral video and making a complete ass of herself. And there's a lot of people with this mentality in San Francisco. And my theory about San Francisco is this. It's an adult daycare. I mean, a lot of cities are kind of like that. You you go to cities, you live in cities for convenience, but the fact that this woman is crying about this bike path, so irritating. And and don't don't get me wrong, I notice it around here in these here parts, in Indiana, uh, there's a, a road not too far from where I live that used to be two lanes both directions. Now it's one lane each direction. They narrowed it down so there could be a middle lane for turning, and then on each side of it, bike paths. I don't think I've seen a bicyclist on any of those bike paths. And don't get me wrong, I like bike paths when they're in secluded areas. Uh, but if I'm riding a bike, I don't want to ride in an area where I can get hit by a Mack truck. It's just, it it does nothing. The roads are for driving, baby. Let, let us have our space and, and uh, avoid the hippie Karens out there with their cell phones. Yeah, my New Year's resolution is to uh, do more driving and less riding. All right, so uh, that's it for me. I uh, hope I'm feeling better for the next podcast. Until next week, or not next week, next time. Stay fresh. You've been listening to Mike Davidson Live. Be sure to check him out on social media. Like him at facebook.com backslash mdavidsonlives. Follow him on Twitter. Look for at Davidson Live.